Hi, I'm Isabella. And I'm Jeff. We're two Asian Australians who want to explore what it means to be Asian in the West. And you're listening to As I Am. A beautiful day and we are currently sitting here with Kishwa Chowdhury. If you don't know her already, she placed top three in MasterChef Australia in 2021. Since her time at MasterChef, Kishwa has staged at Ishizuka and also collaborated with Chef Adam De Silva to create a modern Australian Bengali inspired menu for Tonka. Beyond food though, Kishwa is also heavily involved in community engagement through her involvement with the UN World Food Program, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and Feast for Freedom. More recently, she was one of our esteemed guest panellists at Asian Futures Food, Culture and Identity. Great to see you again, Kishwa. How are you going today? Really lovely to see you too. Thanks for having me. We had such a great event and we had such a long chat. So excited to be seeing you both again and here on As I Am. Yeah, fantastic. Amazing. I want to jump straight actually into Asian Futures because I feel like there were so many insightful things that came out of that panel. And on reflection, you know, I think one of my favorite things that you said was how, you know, your children really love taking ethnic foods to school. And that nowadays it's the stinkier, the better, including, you know, the truffle oil that you put in your your, your child's food, which I absolutely love. Um, my and, you know, my bougie child. I, I love it. <laughs> and it, it's so interesting because, you know, I think that completely contrasts to, I guess, my generation and Jeff's generation where, you know, we were quite embarrassed to bring our lunch boxes and foods to school because it was quote unquote stinky. I mean, I'm just curious to hear your experience of what raising children in 2020 looks like, especially in regards to food and culture and identity. Essentially, we're doing a rehash of Asian Futures again, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're just going a little bit deeper. <laughs> uh, for everyone who wasn't there that day. <laughs> no, I think I, I obviously had a very, very similar experience and a very different experience to my children growing up with um, lunch boxes, and I was the only, I'd like to say, brown person in my whole school when I first started school here. And in the early 80s or mid-80s, it was just easier to follow the cookie cutter, mm. Vegemite or jam or peanut butter sandwiches, but now you can't take peanut butter sandwiches mm. because of nut allergies, so I feel like that's where people miss out. Um, yeah, it's so different. My children, the experience that they have is that because of shows like MasterChef and all the work that's been done in the last 20, 30 years, I'd like to say in terms of representation or just changing the way we look at food or ingredients and what's available to us or what's more common and more familiar to us means that my children not only eat what they want, but they come home sometimes and dictate that, Ma, I just had the best bow. Next <laughs> week in project is learning to make yeah. the fluffiest bow ever. So I learned through them too. Um, and lunch boxes are just so varied now. My quick and easy lunches now aren't just making Vegemite sandwiches like I used to have and still love. And I eat a lot of those because of my childhood nostalgia. Mm -hmm. But my, my uh, Serafina, what we were talking about at Asian Futures was her favorite lunch is just leftover rice, which we always have and eat for dinner. So leftover rice, 
frozen peas, like a cracked egg and some truffle oil. So that's just like an average lunch for a prep that she expects from me now. (laughs) That's insane. I love it. I love it so much. Is that almost the norm though? Like have you had a chat with other parents or have, have they sort of told you stories like, oh, everyone's eating this, like this is just normal now? Or is it just because of the fact that her mom is an incredible chef. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if everyone ha- takes like truffle oil egg fried rice to school. Um, I'm lucky because I get to work with some amazing food producers around Victoria. So that's in my pantry and it just works well. But yeah, I definitely get a lot of feedback from my son who's in year seven, who if I am packing biryani or tehari or a traditional dish, I can't just pack it for him. I have to pack the same food Mm. like I have to pack at least two full boxes so that his friends can eat it too um and I yeah I like he just says mom last time you took biryani uh so and so ate it could you just pack two boxes if you're going to give me you know something like that to school I'm like understood and then his friends come and they're year sevens and they're growing boys so I know that when they're coming over they're definitely here to have a really big hearty meal so yeah yeah, especially after sports games Mm, I love that and I think food is just so powerful as well because often it it is kind of like the gateway into another culture and insight into another culture that you may ordinarily not have exposure to so fantastic to see that that kind of interaction and you know integration is happening at such younger levels at school so yeah yeah incredible to see yeah (laughs) and they're not nervous to share like I think we probably grew up having that sort of maybe felt a bit intimidated and we would sort of tread carefully in those areas not kids in 2022 Mm. yeah I remember when I was in high school mum would tell me a story about you know you know the Korean roasted seaweed that you get in packets and now you can find it everywhere in Woolies I think I was maybe 14 at the time and she was saying oh I was on the train and um, I was coming home and I, I was super hungry. So I started to eat the seaweed. And this woman next to me just said, can you put that away? It smells really bad. So she was like, oh, oh. don't bring that to school anymore. And so I like if I did, I would just like scoff it down in my locker and, and just sort of not bring it out into, I guess, like the public view. But then my partner's a primary school teacher now. And that is one of the most common snacks mm. amongst yep. her children, which is just insane to me. I think that was one of the things she found so surprising was just chatting to the kids like oh this is my favorite snack it's it's so crunchy and salty and obviously she packs a lot of leftovers that we have at home and it's all Asian food and the kids are super interested to know what she's eating and to learn a bit more about it so I love seeing this shift in a mentality of where you know school lunches whether regardless of where they come from and, and what diverse backgrounds people are super super curious about it so I'm really enjoying seeing this shift and hopefully that sort of continues to to feed upwards as they, they get older yeah but I guess another thing that you spoke about um when we were on the panel was that when you travel back to South Asia um you're sort of recognized as a foreigner despite being from that ethnic community we'd like to sort of unpack a bit more about that like why do you think that is I think um well everyone who's born as a third culture child or um sort of grows up in a country like Australia or North America, the UK, where I lived for a little while, I think there's a very similar shared experience of never being cultural or ethnic enough, but also 
not feeling completely part of the country that you're born in. Like, I don't know if I feel like I'm Bengali enough or if I'm Australian enough and always having your feet in two boats. But yeah, when I do travel back and a lot of the interview questions I get is like, despite being born and brought up in Australia, how are you so connected to your culture? And Mm. it's quite offensive or it's quite rude when people are shocked that we still say speak the language or eat the food that we grew up eating. Um, And I think that connection to your culture is like other things that are very personal, like religion or sexuality. I think your cultural identity, like every other element of identity, is a spectrum. And the diasporas have grown now. And I think people like us who um, belong to a diaspora, we suddenly have a collective voice and that voice is a lot larger and a lot louder. Um, And there are people who in my field of work or generally I connect to in the UK and I connect to in America all the time and I feel very seen and heard because um, this is our very authentic identity. We are part of a diaspora. We are third culture children and um, it's, it's lovely that we can own that space because there's enough numbers now. Yeah. I think I was reading um, about how in the UK the number of, like, Indian immigrants is set to overtake. Essentially the idea was that, like, it's considered the minority more, like the Indian population there, which I think is so fantastic to just see that, like, culture is fluid and, like, I think it's just so interesting seeing that diasporas move but you still are able to kind of maintain that really strong sense of culture and identity kind of regardless of where the diaspora is um, and I think having that like rich long rich line of tradition is so important to cultivate and what better avenue to do that than through something like food um, so yeah I, I think it's just so fascinating yeah yeah I think the food allows you to have some really difficult conversations sometimes it's hard to express in words but for me it was easier mm. to express that on a plate mm. when I'm using Australian native ingredients or produce that you wouldn't find in Asia and is very specific and um, important to not only Australia but Victoria and Melbourne where I'm from something like sardines from Port Phillip Bay um, to use that in um, my dishes means that it's it's an, it's an easier way to show wholly who I am and how I'm represented and what I not just grew up eating, but who I am on a plate. I could never cook a dish from Bangladesh or India authentically the way it is there because I didn't grow up eating that. I didn't have access to those produce or those ingredients. So I think it's a really lovely way of being able to, you know, showcase yourself as an Australian with techniques that are hundreds of generations old. Hundred mm, yeah. percent. What's sort of been a recent dish that you've made that can sort of speak to this philosophy of like putting yourself on the plate? Quite a few. Um, I'll go back to a oh maybe at Tonka. So throughout my menu, I use Australian native ingredients, and that was definitely influenced by my run on Master Chef and going out to Uluru. I think that was a very pivotal moment for me as a chef but also as a person because it really changed my perspective of the fact that being born and brought up here, I know I have done very little apart from what we were taught in school to understand the land that I was born in um, and to understand the responsibility of this land and who we are as a country and what is our cultural and, I guess, culinary 
history that dates back thousands and thousands of years. So I think the dishes that I did at Tonka all had native Australian ingredients, but a particular one that I've showcased overseas as well is a kingfish mm. ceviche with pickled muntries mm. um, and I use fresh star fruit but the green water which has star fruit in it and star mm. fruit is a although it's very tropical and you can find it in the north of Australia is very very um, like central Asian sort of ingredient that you find very commonly in Bangladesh and then having those pickled muntries which is an Australian native fruit that I had not eaten until First time I ate muntries or worked with it or cooked with it was in mm. um, at the Field of Lights wow. in front of Amazing. Uluru. So that's a dish that sort of comes together really well. And it's also a very, mm. what can I say, it's a very harmonious dish. It just, it belongs. And it, I feel mm. like it really represents me. Oh, Yeah, fantastic. I love that. Man, I've never had a good, just, just quick aside, I've never <laughs> had a star fruit that tasted like anything. Oh. Like I, I feel like every, every time I eat star fruit, it's really, really sour or it's really bland. Right. I like the texture of it. I think I had it in a salad one yeah. time, but I think I just not had good star fruit. And that's one of the one things I do miss about traveling. I haven't been traveling since the last three years. I think the main thing is just trying new mm. fruits. Oh. Like the, the first time I had like a mango sting uh, was insane. I don't know. Like what, what fruit do you miss, Isabella? From Vietnam. Oh, mango is probably one of my favorite fruits. Or um, I don't know the English words of these fruits I'm thinking about, but they're they're commonly found in Southeast Asia, but particularly in Vietnam, like jom jom. It's like is it rambutan maybe the really big spiky red one? Oh, is it like a lychee? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Or there's one called up like bolshu. It's like a translated. It's like kind of like a milky fruit with like a green coat. I don't see the thing. I don't know what custard, custard apple? apple maybe. Oh, that's yeah. not. That's the thing. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love I feel like these apple. these these fruits are yeah fruits I've grown up with when I went back to Vietnam and I just don't know the English word for it, but it's it's it reminis- it's so reminiscent of home and and my culture. So yeah. Yeah, that's so relatable. The amount of produce I'd say that I know the Bengali word for, but it's actually quite commonly eaten here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, just to circle back to you know your time at Master Chef. There's a quote I pulled, which you've said, which I would really like to unpack. It goes like this. You said, I'm very happy with my homestyle dish, but I wonder if that's enough for this competition. My style of food might not be fancy enough to be on MasterChef. And I'm just really curious to kind of understand this like train of thought, because yes, I I agree. I feel like there's this perception that, you know, fancy food is very Eurocentric. You know, you have you know, institutions like the Cordon Bleu that, you know, instill like French techniques that go back centuries. And I feel like the idea and notion of fancy and fine dining is very Eurocentric. But I just wonder how we can push back and challenge against this notion that Asian food doesn't lend itself to fine dining or the level of sophistication that a competition like MasterChef demands. I think even if you look at very simple techniques that go into Asian food you realize that it's not simple like there's so much intricacy and nuance and skill that goes into so many things that go into Asian food but I would just kind of love to talk about I guess this perception that Asian food isn't good enough for fine dining and kind of what your thoughts are navigating the competition as well having cooked Asian food. Yeah I think when I first ended up in MasterChef I definitely felt that way I definitely felt that um okay, you feel very nervous. Cooking food that you really love and that's very personal and obviously food is such 
a core part of our identities. Um, and so when you bring out a dish that has never been sort of seen outside the realm of our homes, you do feel a little bit nervous stacking it up in a room that's a comp- it's a very competitive environment. And so I did definitely feel that I'm a home cook. I came into this competition completely um, as a home cook. And I was wondering if, you know, I really did question if it was good enough. I think the process of MasterChef, having that range or that process of MasterChef, what it taught me was exactly what you were saying. The techniques that go into the food that we cook at home has been learned and passed down to us for generations. These aren't dishes that didn't happen by accident. Some of these recipes are hundreds, if not thousands of years old, um, and they're perfected and they work. And that's why, you know, they're shared by millions, if not in some cases, billions of people across the world. Um, So there was a lot of shedding that I had to do to really, really see that and to really understand that. On the other hand, there were times where there were dishes that I truly believed in. And I knew, I think by the end, I had that confidence. And by the end, I knew that, yes, this is a dish or it's a peasant dish and it's never been seen before. And I knew what I was doing to present it, especially I'd say in the finals, where a lot of people from my own culture or background saw it as a homestyle dish. So it's not that you don't value it, it's where it sits. And definitely there is a lot of uh, hierarchy in food. And there is a lot of, I'd like to say, sort of like um, unbeknown racism in food as well, where we see Mm. something as fine dining, but we don't consider something else as fine dining or having that stance. And I would say that definitely happens within our own communities and cultures as well. And in terms of representing or cooking these dishes, you can't just come into a platform like MasterChef and not be, you know, not have a range of skills across the platform. Um, and so sometimes I would do desserts or bake and I spent a lot of my 20s living in London baking and being obsessed with pastry and French pastry. So there were times where I baked or there were times where I made handmade pasta and those dishes did really well. But the impact of the dishes I cook from my culture and to be the first person to be doing this on this platform or to be having this global platform to be able to present these sorts of dishes in a master chef way to me was those days were so fulfilling I used to leave the sets be on the bus and just just feel really wonderful and that's why I kept tapping into it over and over again it was just such a wonderful feeling to do that yeah I love that I think um One thing I've been thinking about a lot recently, I don't really have an answer on it, so I'd be keen to hear both your thoughts, is do you feel like the fine dining is needed? And more specifically, do we need to have more fine dining restaurants that focus on Asian food or African food or something from, you know, a minority culture in order for it to be perceived as a worthy cuisine? Because I think there's this kind of tension that I have to constantly reconsider and and think about is, you know, we've grown up being accustomed to a lot of the foods that we love from our cultures being, I guess, a certain price point, whether it's, you know, Mm. the dumplings or a bowl of noodles and stuff that there's a certain price point that you expect for it. Um, And because of that, it is perceived as cheap food, even though it is incredibly delicious. Mm -hmm. But also when you see that food being elevated, and it is really quite expensive. 
I almost find myself like having that feeling of like, why does it cost this much? Like, for example, yesterday I saw Chris had gone to Kakom Banmiba, the one that's attached to anchovy. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll go. And so I went in the afternoon and it's delicious. It's delicious. But it's 15 16 up to $18 for a bummy. And I was eating it and I was kind of like, this is doing something that's amazing, right? You're taking, they're, they're cooking things on live fire. You're using all these amazing techniques. But should this food be this expensive? And part of me is like, yes, because it's worthy of being this price point because of the time and effort that gets put into it. But I have this internal, almost selfish conflict where it's like, oh, I wish it was you know, the price I'm normally used to. But this is, this is something I think about a lot, but I'd be keen to hear, hear your thoughts on Akishwa and then Isabella as well. Yeah, I think that is essential. It's not just important. I think it is essential to see different ethnic cuisine in fine dining spaces, just like any other arts, like the culinary arts, like any other art space, until you see a wide variety of representation and worldview those spaces are then taken up or written by someone else and someone else takes that narrative. And in terms of talking about overpriced food, whether that's Asian or African, people have been taking up that space a lot. It's it's not like you can walk into fine dining spaces and say, no, it's just French food or it's just European or Eurocentric cuisine. Asian food has been Uh, think about a lot of the restaurants here in Melbourne at Crown Casino, um, and I'm not going to name any names, but there have been other people sort of taking ethnic food and Asian food to a fine dining level and demanding those prices, and we are happy to pay those prices. It's very, very important for Asian chefs and ethnic chefs, and this is, I I mean, it's done so well, I'd say, in America, in these bigger markets where you see African food at a fine dining level, um, you know, South American food, you know, Jose Andres, what he does, like just it's incredible Mexican food and you go, okay, that's a taco, but that's a taco. Why are we happy to pay this much for a bowl of pasta, but we're happy to pay for it at this price in a fine dining space? It's a bowl of pasta at the end of the day or it's a steak at the end of the day. We can say that about anyone's food until Asian and ethnic chefs come into those spaces and fill up those spaces and sort of make you rethink what it is about our own food that we wouldn't pay those prices for, you're, you're never going to have that representation. You're never going to have that voice. And yes, every single sort of cuisine has the food truck sloppy joe version of it. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a fine dining version of it. Um, the chefs that I follow, and I'm, you know, just in awe of Gaganan and in Singapore, Atul Kachar, they're you know, numerous Michelin stars. And if it wasn't for people like them breaking through that noise and saying, okay, I can do this. And this is what I guess, South Asian fine dining, interesting with molecular gastronomy, sort of mind blowing concepts of food sitting in the heart of Singapore and just being such an, I'm talking about Gaganan and he's just such a amazing, quirky artist. And he just does with food something that we only see Heston Bloomingfield doing otherwise. If we don't take up those spaces, we will then always expect to eat a $7 bun mei. I think it's just crucial and important for me, but the next generation of chefs or any sorts of artists to hone our craft and see us ourselves in those spaces. Yeah, yeah. And I think also resisting the idea that 
cheap food is only Asian food. Like, you know, I think that there's a lot of, I think we've been socialized to think that because I think, you know, part of it is kind of economic necessity, right? You think about the bun me shops back in the early 2000s and 90s. And of course it was super cheap back then because like there were no other means to kind of have it be any higher, you know? Like I think often it's it's sad of survival that, you know, that these products and foods are so cheap, but obviously it, there comes a point where, I mean, inflation for one thing, but secondly, you know, like I think you've got to really recognize that it's like you said, it's it's been cultivated, these recipes being passed down for generations and generations and having those kinds of techniques being imbued in these foods, like it the the price should, you know, reflect these techniques and what, you know, it deserves essentially. But yeah, it's interesting to hear your perspective on that though. Yeah. I think the greatest thing about Asian food is that the access to it has always been so open, mm. like the gates or the access to good food, yeah. um, good street food, um, and how dedicated people are to their craft. You have the one vendor making banh mi and then you have the one person making jilabi all their life, their entire life, and then it's generational and their children pass that down. But similar story in Mexico and then Africa as well, where you have, you just have such uh, easy access to good food. So we expect it to be affordable. But in a similar way, I think, um, especially with diasporas, I see so many second generation businesses where I grew up eating or shopping from, and I see the second generation take over those businesses um, and just transform it. Do you know of Oasis or A1 Bakery? Yes, Mm. yes. So good. Yeah, so A1 is like North Road uh, Oasis down the road and I'm from Oakley. So we grew up and it was just sort of like a warehouse yeah. and now it's like just an amazing yeah. fancy cafe with yeah. the best sort of food and produce yeah. and it's just so great to see what the second generation has turned that business into. Um, but even my favourite vendors at Springvale, you know, you, you know that you've sort of bought food or produce from them or uh, eaten at those restaurants as a child and then the second generation have invested back and seen the potential and marketed it in a way that's more accessible to the general public. Um, and sure, they should demand those prices for it. It's fantastic food. Absolutely. For sure. I think uh, the, the last thing we sort of want to talk about in terms of MasterChef was um, and we touched on this a little bit earlier before, was a lot of, I guess, your experience there and your time there revolved around your obviously deserved praise in showcasing Bengali food to the Australian mainstream. Um, but obviously you have many other skills. We were talking about the pasta, the pastry, um, that is not just Bengali food. So do you think there is this pressure to represent your cultural heritage and your food? And how do you balance this with the need to not be pigeonholed? And to add on to that as well, is being pigeonholed a bad thing? Like, is that just not specialization? Like, is I feel like pigeonholed tends to have this almost negative connotation to it, but can we actually see it as a strength? Yeah, I think um, like everyone else in our real lives, we're all very multifaceted. But then what the public sees is a very pigeonholed or a very streamlined version of who you are and what you do. I definitely, I think, uh, at the beginning of this journey felt that, hey, this is, I don't only cook this or my skills aren't only for that. And um, MasterChef being such a big platform, you do get a lot of, um, there is a lot tweeted about it and there is a lot of 
media around it um, and a lot of feedback. Um, and when you when you get comments like, oh, you know, she's cooking curry again or he's cooking curry again or blah, 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 you feel so defensive. You feel so like you need to defend yourself. And I think through the process of when you when you hear the worst or feel the worst and it's been months of that and you're like, no, I actually did really well and I, I, I won that challenge by not cooking anything ethnic at all that I cooked. And you, you sort of want to defend yourself. But as time went on, I just sort of owned that space a little bit and just went, yeah, I cooked a curry. I smashed it out of the ballpark and I freaking won that day. <laughs> you know, like sometimes you're just like for, for ages, you're like, no, I'm not just this person. I'm not. So I think it was a lot of um, being defensive because as Australians or as Asian Australians, we know that, yes, this is what we eat and this is what we eat at home, but this is also what we eat at home and this is also what we cook and this is also just a very normal skill set. I'm just a normal Melbourne girl. And I think, yeah, 100% they um, there is this whole characterization. Um, but everyone felt it in the room. Someone felt like they were the pasta girl and someone felt like they were the fine dining guy and someone else felt like they were the, you know, Aussie guy from the bush sort of thing and like everyone was like like everyone's like oh you know if I do that I know I won't do well because they don't see me this way so I think it was a lot of shedding how we are seen um and look I do sometimes often get comments when people meet me and they're like oh we love your food but you know I would never be able to cook a curry I hate spicy food and I was just like well you're missing out first yeah. of all but um if if you look at all of my recipes published online, I wouldn't say any of them are very, very spicy or like it. So, yes, 100 percent. There is there is pigeonholing. And I think apart from what it means to you personally, it does sometimes uh, you do worry in a career perspective if it means you're missing out on work. Mm. Yeah. If you go, OK, that's that's the only thing I'm seen as doesn't mean I miss jobs that belong in the mainstream or do you miss out on positions that mean that you can you know that your audience is a wider audience and you're not just seen on taking jobs that involve ethnic food because you want it just to be food you don't want to have any of those labels or tags that limit you yeah yeah absolutely um looking ahead though I'm, I'm curious in your opinion where do you think the future of food is headed in Australia and I know we've touched on and especially in Asian futures, like the need to have more native ingredients represented, like in mainstream Australian food. But curious to kind of hear from you um, in more detail, just where you think the future of food is headed or otherwise where it should be heading. Yeah, I think the future of food in Australia and globally, I think the movement is very much towards um looking back into our past, mm. really, really looking onto the history of this country, the land that we're on, the food and the ingredients that are meant to be grown here. And that's just a bigger part of ecologically where we're headed as the human race, I would say. I think to move forward, it means learning from a time where everything works or we're slightly less broken. And that includes elements of food wastey and eating nose to tail and farm to fork. If we just go a few generations back into my culture, at least, it was really important to use the whole animal or be more respectful of the animals that we do 
hunt to eat rather than going into mass production. So we are we see that movement, and I think when chefs work in these spaces, I think that's the impact that we're all trying to make. Not just why are we using native ingredients because it's trending. No, because it means that those ingredients then have a market, have a space. The more we present them in the spaces that we're in and in the the spaces where I cook in means that people are curious and then they try and experiment with those at home. So they're the things that um, sort of propel our planet forward, but also they're the things that I want to impart on my children to look back into sort of why people ate the way they did and how they ate and how we move forward in a way that leaves a better footprint on the planet. I think that's the where Australian food is heading. Yeah. Um, favorite and sorry, we don't want to blow up any of your spots and you don't have to tell us if you don't want to, but what are your top three places to eat right now? Oh, top three places to eat. Um, okay, I'm going to go a few local and then I think I'll start with CBD. The place where I love at the moment is Gimlet. Mm-hmm. I think they oh. opened up with a bang and it's only a couple of, like just a year old yeah, probably. killing it. But, yeah, so even like whether it's dinner or after theatre, I just feel like the vibe, the ambience, everything. I've just loved it and it's a little bit um, nostalgic, sort of old Melbourne charm. Mm. So I've, I've recently really loved Gimlet since it's opened up. Um my local is, I have to give a big shout out to uh, Nico's at Oakley and Vanilla. Mm. It always, always, always hits the spot. If you haven't been to Eaton Mall in Oakley, you're missing out. It is the biggest, watch me, like, just go on. My <laughs> local. Go for it, go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, just Eaton Mall in Oakley is, I feel like it's, again, another little subculture or subcountry within Melbourne itself. <laughs> um, it's the Greek capital of Melbourne, which has, and I think our city has the biggest Greek population outside Greece. So if you haven't eaten there, it's always fun. There's always great pastry, great food, mm. great euros. Like it's just, it's always happening. I can't go past Eden Mall in Oakley. And then what's my third favourite place I love to eat? Um Oh, okay. This is a chain, so I'll go with a chain store, easily accessible. Uh, Hakata Jensuke. Oh, it's where I had yeah. a classic. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so I just had, I just, I, I had a craving, and so drove the kids. We went to Carnegie, but they're in cute, like the CBD, and they've sort of got little chains everywhere. But um, yeah, I think outside North America, and then. China and a few other Asian countries. Melbourne is one of the only places where they have Hakata Jinsuke mm. um, in in Australia. So we're very lucky to have them. And I get a once in a month craving. And so yesterday we did a drive up <laughs> and had ramen there. <laughs> Amazing. Well, there's one that's literally right between Isabella and I on Glenferry Road. So maybe yeah. maybe we head there next time for our I think team, so. meeting. I think- team meeting. Team <laughs> uh, there's meeting. There's another spot on um Glen Ferry that opened recently you might have seen all the press around it Corey the new ice cream place um right I, th- I can't remember it was opened by the the pastry chef from Coda I yep. think she would yep actually I, was it Adam De Silva no it wasn't Adam De Silva has um Boca so that's his gelato place mm. yeah so it's it's similar like a lot of Asian flavors they had 
um, like a miso flavor. There's tofu vanilla. And honestly, oh. each week the line gets longer and longer and longer. But it's it's just this really amazing. It's akin to very like fine dining ice cream. It's super smooth, um, amazing, just 24 flavors. Go check it out. That's probably That's probably my top pick at the moment. Uh, amazing actually maybe we'll cut that bit out just because i don't want the line to get any longer (laughs) no i was gonna say i I know who you're talking about um and it's a female chef isn't it? correct yes the female pastry chef from coda and chunka yeah i think she was gonna one of the melbourne food and wine 30 under 30 recently as well yeah i do remember that but great spot coda and chunka again um since we're talking about food um chunka's head chef um, Kayleen Tan, incredible, absolute dessert gun. Aside from just brilliant, spot-on desserts, I think the food in both those venues are really incredible. I've been having mad sweet cravings recently because Krishwa, I've been dieting for my first fight, which is a Sunday, and I don't normally eat a lot of sweet things, but for some reason, I just I can't stop thinking about sweet things. Like I, I, I just go to Woolies or Coles and just walk down the the lolly aisle and just literally stare at each thing and just be like, what, what do all these new things come in? Like Milo Kit Kat looks amazing. Has anyone been to that massive Kit Kat store in the middle of? Um, it was in the middle of Melbourne Central. Oh, where you kind of design your own? Yeah, I do remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that still open? I'm not sure. I think it might might have been a pop up, but there were hundreds of flavors of Kit Kat and I think Kit Kat is sort of given as a gift in Japan it is. like it's a it's a gift box yeah the, item, there are some right? amazing flavors apple Kit Kat uh there's yeah. a cheesecake Kit Kat uh, which yeah. you actually bake so it's not chocolate on the outside it's puff pastry so you buy it and then right. you bake it and then it's like all warm inside. Anyway, this is it. This is like the next level deep fried Mars bar. Correct, crack. correct. This is just like bake your own kick. I love yeah, it. Yeah, so they have some amazing kick Oh, this is, this is a huge tangent. Uh, we're going to – this will tell you about my uh, my mental state right now, just thinking about kick all the time. We're going to bring it back to the podcast. Um, last question before we get you out of here, Kishwa. It's been an amazing chat. But obviously you're doing amazing – what do you got coming up? What's next for you? So what's next for me is I'm heading off to India soon um, and I will be doing a fantastic tour promoting Australian ingredients and Australian produce to the Indian market. Amazing. So it's Incredible. a huge challenge. It's very, very exciting but yeah. to get out there and visit all the sort of like the north and the south yeah. and different spaces and different cities um but to be cooking with australian ingredients is just the best way to go on tour so i'm really looking forward to that oh that's gonna be so incredible i can't wait to see all the photos and follow you on your journey that but yeah that should be amazing all the best for that <laughs> amazing thank you before we wrap up, was there anything you'd like to plug or share with our audience? Um, so after India, I come back from India um, and then we go straight into the season of the T20 World Cup, which is Australia's largest global sporting event. Um, and I'm a champion for the T20 cricket this year. Amazing. So it's just, yeah, so it's just so fun and amazing. And I think... It's one of cricket is one of those things that's your you know like it's your quintessential Aussie yeah. summer vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but it also brings so many different Asian communities together. Um, those massive games, uh, every time India plays at a stadium, it's a, akin to a grand final with footy here. <laughs> yeah. The stadiums are full. Um, we're looking to do something or we'll announce later with food. But the community vibe around the cricket and the food and the culture around cricket is just what I live for. So look out for the T20 um, World Cup happening starting at the end of October. Oh, incredible. Amazing. Looking forward to it. Well, Kishwa, it has been an absolute delight to speak to you again. And honestly, I feel like I, I always learn from you and I feel like I still keep learning from you. So thank you so much for you know ha- taking the time to sit down with us and share all of your insights into this incredible conversation. And yeah, we've really enjoyed having you on. Oh, I always, always love catching up with you too. So I can't <laughs> wait to see you soon. Um, and I can't wait to hit some really, really exciting Melbourne spots to eat and hopefully eat together. looking forward to it Um, if you enjoyed this episode at home make sure you give it five stars wherever you get your podcasts and we'll catch you guys in the next episode see you later bye